The following program is sponsored by Cleveland Right to Life and is responsible for its content. Welcome to From the Median, a daily report from the front line of the pro-life movement, discussing two worldviews that are driving our culture in opposite directions. From the Median asks, which side of the road are you on? What direction do you want our culture to go? Tune in as we plan the route that takes us back to the culture of life. And now your host, Molly Smith. Good evening and welcome to From the Median, where we are concerned with the middle ground, not just to understand both sides of an argument, but also to awaken the consciences of those who are neutral or indifferent to this, the greatest civil rights movement of all times, the pro-life movement. This evening, we continue our Bringing America Back to Life series. Tonight, we will feature a presentation from our 2022 convention. We know that you will be inspired by the ideas, the principles, the experiences, and the wisdom of our speakers as they join us to pave the way back to life through prayer, action, voting, and education. It's my pleasure to introduce David Barton, the founder and president of Wall Builders. This national pro-family organization presents America's forgotten history and heroes, emphasizing our moral, religious, and constitutional heritage. Wall Builders seeks to energize the grassroots today to become involved in strengthening their communities, states, and nation. His exhaustive research has rendered him an expert in historical and constitutional issues. David serves as a consultant to state and federal legislators and has participated in several cases at the Supreme Court. He has developed the history and social studies standards for Texas and California and has helped produce history textbooks now used in schools nationwide. Enjoy his presentation at this year's Bringing America Back to Life convention, entitled The Consequence of Life First. Thanks, Bob. Appreciate it. Thank you, guys. It's good to be with you. I want to start with a Bible verse, a fairly simple Bible verse. And that Bible verse is Proverbs 10.22. Proverbs 10.22, the Scripture says, and let's see if I can get it going here, the blessing of the Lord, it maketh the rich, and he adds no sorrow to it. And what Scripture teaches is God's blessings are something that enrich our life. And it turns out that some of the greatest blessings we have are some of the simplest things that occur around us. I learned this from a man named Dr. Benjamin Rush. He's a signer of the Declaration of Independence. And by the way, John Adams, John Adams said of all the founding fathers, he said the three most notable were George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, and Benjamin Rush. Now, we know a little about Benjamin Rush today, but he was one of the most three most notable. He started the first abolition society in America, started several Christian organizations, the first Bible society, the first Sunday school movement. He trained the first um, black physicians. He trained, he started academic education for women. He started five universities. Just unbelievable what the guy did. And we own about 160,000 original items out of American history, including thousands of items from the founding fathers, George Washington, Adams, Jefferson, etc., including Benjamin Rush's writings. And one of the writings we own from Benjamin Rush's is prayer journals. And so in his prayer journals and, and in his writings, he literally is trying to be a good Christian, be very appreciative to God of all the blessings he enjoys. And so he's going through, and I'm reading this, and he's listing all these blessings. And he gets to one that just really kind of made me scratch my head. He said, he said I thank God for all the times I have not fallen downstairs. Uh, run that by me again. Now, I'll point out, I just ran upstairs over here, and I didn't fall, and nobody noticed that. If I'd fallen, you would have noticed it. That would not have been a blessing. The fact that it didn't happen is a blessing. When you go to the store and don't have a wreck, and you get back home and have a wreck, it never crosses your mind you didn't have a wreck, but it's a blessing you didn't have a wreck. If you'd had a wreck, you would have noticed it. A lot of the things we notice are not blessings. A lot of the things we don't notice and take for granted are the biggest blessings, like your health until something happens to it, uh, like your family until something happens, or a job until something happens, and then we notice what we've lost. We in America live surrounded with such blessings we have no clue how blessed we are. Let me give you one example. If you look at who we are as a people, there's 193 nations at the United Nations today. That number goes up and down every year. And out of those 193 nations, they all have a form of government. When you look at the history of the forms of government, it's very interesting. America, we created our Constitution in 1787, ratified it in 1788. 1789, it goes into operation. We've had one government since 1789. One piece of paper, one government. So since 1789, look at the other nations in the world and notice how many governments they've had in that same period of time. 
Imagine living anywhere else in the world, and imagine how many governments you would have been through in the same period of time that we've had just one. And it really doesn't matter whether you're an enemy nation or an allied nation. Everybody goes through this on a regular basis. Instability is the norm for governments, not us. We think what we have is normal. What we have is not normal. Matter of fact, in the 5,800 years of recorded history, if you ask the question, what is the length of an average government in the history of the world, the answer is 17 years. Last September the 17th, on, the, on Constitution Day, we celebrated 234 years under the same piece of paper. So we have stability in a way that no other nation has, and we just take it for granted. We assume this is natural. Matter of fact, according to, uh, according to national, international data, you'll find that historically an, a nation averages a violent revolution every generation and a new constitution every 17 years. That's not us. We're blessed with stability. In the same way, we're blessed with creativity. America represents 4% of the world's population. Now, creativity, by the way, is measured in various ways, international copyright and patent protection, etc. And when you look at the creativity that's out there, America's produced more scientific, invent- more scientific cures, more medical technology, more scientific technology, more space technology, more entertainment. I mean, we've, we've done more than all the other 96% of the world combined. of the world's population should produce 4% of the world's whatever. Mm -mm. Here, our 4% has outproduced the other 96% of the world. So we have more creativity and technology and entertainment and everything than the rest of the world combined. And and it's just as as a little side note. I've got two kids active duty army right now, and I do a lot of stuff for military, all the branches, and so I'm often asked to do trainings at military bases and for officers or chaplains or whatever group it is, and so they asked me to go to Germany and, and do military bases there. I think we've got 27 or 28 bases in, in Germany. So when I went over to Germany, they put me, in a, they put me up in a five-star hotel. Now, I am a cowboy from Texas with everything that goes with that, the ranch, the horses, everything else, and I get to be in a five-star German hotel that... I mean, that's old world elegance. The castles and everything's thousands of years old, and it was super cool, and the service was unbelievable. I'd walk inside the hotel, and they would call me by name, Mr. Barton, welcome back. Is there anything we can... It was just unbelievable. And I'll tell you, that five-star service would have been even better if they would have had internet at that five-star hotel. <laughs> now, may I point out, every Motel 6 in America has internet? I mean... There's so many things we take for granted because we're so used to it, and you won't find it elsewhere. So even with creativity, and even if you go to something like our our prosperity, um, our 4% of the world's population every year produces somewhere between 24 25% of the world's gross domestic product. The Constitution requires that we do a census every 10 years. So we did one last year. Results came out last year and this year, and we find that right now if you live below the poverty level in America— and we, we don't want anyone living below the poverty level in America. But if you live below the poverty level in America, according to the census data, your lifestyle is higher than the middle class in Europe. If you're in poverty in America, higher middle class in Europe. As it turns out, the World Bank sets the international standard for poverty, and it's $2 a day. So according to the World Bank, you live in poverty if you live on $730 a year or less. In America, states like Mississippi, states like Hawaii, etc., they say, hey, guys, unless you're making more than $61,000 a year, you should not come off government assistance because that's what you get on government assistance. Really? 61,000 versus 730. See, we're blessed in ways we just don't understand. The rest of the nation, the rest of the world understands how different we are. This is why everybody in the world wants to come to America and live in poverty here. If they can just live in poverty in America, they've raised their lifestyle unbelievable amounts. It's significant that when you see who we are, it's been this way for hundreds of years. If you go back to 1831, a Frenchman named Alexis de Tocqueville came to America, and he wrote the book Democracy in America, 1835, and he said, the condition of the Americans is quite exceptional. It may be believed that no democratic people will ever be placed in a similar position. Now, from that statement he made is where we get the term American exceptionalism. So American exceptionalism, it's not a, it's not a brag thing. It's not look at us, we're exceptional. It is that we are the exception, not the rule. When it comes to stability, we're the exception, not the rule. We're exceptional. When it comes to creativity, prosperity, any other category, we're the exception, not the rule. Now, this is something academics hate. Uh, There are a number of books out called The Myth of America. 
exceptionalism. If you go through American University, you're going to learn how bad America is. We do it debates with professors all the time. And professors continually say, oh, America has done more bad in the world than she's ever done good. And everything bad in the world came out of America. And I mean, they're so anti-American. And so this is, this is what we typically get. But when you look at, at how this attack goes, it's significant. If you go back and say, okay, where did, where did exceptionalism come from? It's something that professors don't define. So let me define it for you. American exceptionalism it was, is what describes the unprecedented stability and freedom and prosperity that is a result of institutions and policies that were created by unique governing philosophy. Now, this is the definition of American exceptionalism. So let me point out a few things here. And by the way, this does relate to life. I'm going to take you back historically and show you how that life was a key issue all the way back in the founding. I'm going to show you, of course, because we think this is a post-Roe v. Wade movement. It's not a post-Roe v. Wade movement. Abortion, as long as people have been pregnant, there are people who do not want to be pregnant. The means of abortion, technology of abortion has changed. The issue of abortion has not changed. Back in the founding era, it was chemical abortions that were the, the, the way you did it, not the physical abortions, the DNC stuff we have now. So I'm going to take you back and show you where life was first in previous generations and why. But let me get you there first to why America is unique, and then you'll understand why they had the philosophy they did. So when you look at, at where we are with this uniqueness, what, what happens is you have a sequence here. We had a governing philosophy, and when we applied that philosophy, we created institutions and policies based on our philosophy. Those institutions and policies then created all the benefits that we enjoy in America today. And this is why people want to come to America, because they like all the, thing, all the fruit that we produce. They like it. But that fruit didn't just show up. It was produced by something, a, a governing philosophy. So really the most important part of why we're different is our governing philosophy. And this is what most people can't recognize today. We do a lot of national We work with a lot of pollsters. And right now, find that something as simple as the three branches of government, I hope you know what that is, 68% of Americans cannot name the three branches of government. And by the way, 48% of elected officials cannot name the three branches of government. So we don't even know why we're special anymore because we don't know who we are or how we operate. So let me take you back to eighth grade earth science. Eighth grade earth science, we learned about the fruit tree. Eighth grade earth science, we learned there's three parts. There's the seed or the seedling that you put in the ground, and from that seedling will grow the infrastructure, will grow the, the trunk and all the branches and everything that, that produces the nutrition for the tree. And then after that, it will put out fruit up top. So you have these three different stages to a fruit tree. That's exactly the way government is. If I can take you back to the three stages of government, the first is what you plant. It's the philosophy. It's a seed that you put in the ground. And let me tell you, every nation in, in the world had the opportunity to plant the same seed that America produced planted. Everybody could have the same fruits. America's not unique in that sense. But we did plant a seed that so far nobody else has planted. They haven't done the same. They haven't produced the same tree or the same fruit. So we've done something unique, and it's not that it's unique ideas. Our founding fathers got these ideas from writings back in their day. But nonetheless, we have a, a different foundation. And that has produced the infrastructure, which is our institutions and our policies. And from that comes the part that everybody likes, all the fruit that we produce, all the creativity, all the prosperity, all the stability. That's the result of that governing philosophy. So you go back to the governing philosophy and say, okay, we're an exceptional nation. So what is it that produced American exceptionalism? And the answer is our founding fathers were prolific writers. They wrote everything down. I mean, we, that's why we have 160,000 items. We're the, probably the largest private collection. But my gosh, when you get to the Smithsonian and, and the National Archives, there's so much writing. Those guys wrote everything down like we have a tendency to record everything today. We'll, we'll tape everything. We'll have it on video. We'll record it some way. So they did the same thing except with writing, which is why Washington has 100 volumes of, of written documents. Jefferson has 100 volumes. Franklin has 80 volumes. Hamilton has 60 volumes. They wrote everything down. And so as you go back and look at what they wrote down, what philosophy, they wrote it down in the Declaration of Independence. When they said to the rest of the world, hey, we're becoming a separate nation, and here's exactly why, they started with 126 words that set forth the five principles of government. They followed that with 27 grievances showing the rights that go with those five principles, and then they closed it out with, the, with their promise that we're going to pledge our lives, fortune, sacred honor, relying on the firm 
protection, divine providence, we're going to get this done. So that's the three different parts of the declaration. If I take you back to the first 126 words, those 126 words, here's what they said. They said, when in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth a separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitles them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Now, those 126 words, that's our philosophy of government. That's what we planted that produced all the policies and institutions that have produced all the fruit that we enjoy today. Everything we did came from that philosophy of government, and there's not a single clause in the Constitution that cannot be traced back to the Declaration, because the Declaration set our philosophy of government. The Constitution simply tells us how to operate under that philosophy. So when you go back to that, those 126 words, those five principles, let me run through them real quickly, because they make a difference in where we are and what we do even today with an issue like the life issue. So if we go back to the very beginning, it starts, the first thing to talk about with the laws of nature, nature's God. Now, this doesn't mean a whole lot to us today, but it meant everything to them back at that point in time. These eight words, they, the, the guy who's really responsible for these eight words is a British judge that's known as William Blackstone. And he points out, this is how you understand what's morally right and morally wrong. He said, now, the laws of nature, nature's God, this is what you can go to to find out what God says is right and what God says is wrong. And as he pointed out, God has revealed himself in two different ways. We'll talk about that in a minute. But once they established what's morally right and morally wrong, it's interesting that the next thing they said was, this is what establishes truth because we hold these truths to be self-evident. So it starts with you can't really know what truth is if you don't have moral rights and wrongs. This is the problem we have in the culture today. National polling we're doing right now says that three out of five Americans believe there is no absolute moral rights or wrongs. They're individually determined. So we don't have moral rights and wrongs, and therefore we don't have absolute truth. It's individually determined. It's four out of five millennials that say there's no absolute moral truth, and one out of two Christians say there's no absolute moral truth. So we're in a point where we don't have absolute moral truth anymore, which means we don't have absolute morals anymore, which means we don't have absolute truth anymore. And this is why political parties go whatever way they whatever they believe that's the absolute truth for them that's not it god has absolute standards so when you take that that those eight words the the laws of nature nature's god and go back those eight words were written in a book by william black named by a guy named william blackstone he published a four volume set from 1766 to 1769 it became the standard for american legal guys american attorneys Jefferson said, American attorneys studied Blackstone's commentaries on the law the same way Muslims studied the Koran. We knew this book back and forth. I have the original of Blackstone's commentaries from back in the 1760s. And in volume one, chapter two, he talks about the nature of laws. He said, all laws come from God and there are two revelations of God's law. Now, it doesn't mean that God has two different standards. He said, there's two revelations. He said, God originally told us everything we needed to know about what was right and wrong and what he created in nature. That's why Romans one twenty says, everything that can be known about God, including the intricacies of the Godhead, have been revealed through what he has created so that even the heathen are without excuse. So Romans 1 makes it really clear God's creation has everything you need to know about what's right and wrong. However, Blackstone pointed out that once man sinned, then sin nature enters the mind and it's no longer as clear to us anymore. And so God and his loving compassion for mankind said, guys, let me just write it down for you. And that's what we call the scriptures, the Bible. So the laws of nature, the laws of nature, God, they, they both affirm each other, but it's two different revelations of God's standard. So when you take those two, it's interesting that you can take and even separate them. Now, part of the problem we have with the laws of nature today is we're no longer a rural nation like we used to be. We're very much centered around urban areas and suburban areas and cities and towns. But out in the country, it's still very different. Uh, Psalm 4610 says, be still, know that I'm God. It's a whole lot easier to do that in the country than it is the city. As a matter of fact, it's really hard to find an atheist in the country. You find most atheists living in the city. If you grow up in the country, it's really easy to see the revelation of God and understand it in a way that you don't if you live in New York City where the, everything you see in every direction is made by man. It's a whole different viewpoint. So if you go back to the laws of nature nature's God, 
if you just set aside the scriptures for a minute, it's pretty easy to determine what's right and wrong if you live in the country. Now, I do, but let me just point out, self-defense. You know, we don't need the Second Amendment to tell us we have a right to Every species will defend itself, will defend its young, and will also defend what it considers to be its property. It doesn't matter if you're a mouse or a lion. It doesn't matter what animal you are. You'll find that that's a law of nature. And you can pass any law you want that says sheep can't defend their young, and it's not going to make a bit of difference what that law is because that's in their nature. God has put it in their nature. The law of self-defense is part of what he creates. Even mice will try to bite you if you try to mess with mice. Who's going to be scared of mice, of a mouse? Well, they still try to defend what they've got. And so they have, they'll use what they So you have self-defense. You also have liberty. And more than 10 million identified species in nature There's not a single occasion where one species enslaves another. Now, some biologists say, well, you know, there are some ants that enslave others. And others say, well, really, they don't. It's a symbiotic relationship. But even if there's ants that do it, out of 10 million species, the laws of God say that liberty is the law of God. Slavery is not a normal condition. Right now, we have 40 million slaves in the world today. We have more slaves in the world today, three times more than we had in 375 years of the African slave trade. 375 years of the African slave trade, we had 12 point million slaves involuntarily brought out of Africa. Today, we've got 40 million. There's 9.2 million in Africa and go through China and everywhere else. We, we're very active in an organization. We run an organization called the Nazarene Fund, which really tries to save particularly Christians out of slavery, sex slavery, etc. We moved hundreds of thousands out of the Middle East when ISIS went in and tried to start killing Christians. So we're very aware of the slavery movement. That's, that's not natural. It's not a law of nature. It's not a law of nature's God. God is into liberty. You find the same thing when you go to abortion. More than 10 million species in nature, you cannot find a single species in what God created that kills its young in the womb. None exist because that's a violation of the laws of nature. I don't need the Bible to tell me abortion's wrong. I have the laws of nature that tell me it's wrong. Same thing if you go to homosexuality, 10 million species. There's a half dozen species or so in which homosexuality does occur, but even in that species, it's not normal. It's, not, it's an aberration. So there is nothing that's mainstream, nothing that, that is part of God's creation that says homosexuality is an alternative lifestyle. It doesn't. It's not there. You have the same thing when you go to transgender issues. This is because Come the big thing in the last four years or so. And by the way, I'm just going to back up. Now, I told you I was a cowboy. So I'm a cowboy from Texas. All the stuff that goes with that lifestyle, that's, that's part of what we do. And I was part of a roundup not long ago in North Dakota. We went into the Badlands in North Dakota for farmers there and farmers and ranchers. We help each other. And so we, we drove about 1,200 cattle out of these breaks in, these, in the Badlands, got them up on top of the mesa, and drove them over into holding pens. And the reason we do is because every year there's calves born every year, and you want to protect those calves. So we drove them all into these holding pens, and we singled out about 580 calves, and they need to be vaccinated. There's seven different diseases that are really tough on cattle and lots of things. And you want to make sure you know what ranch they go on so they're not separated from the mother or whatever. And so what we'll do, those 580 calves, we'll send the cowboy in. He'll rope one of the calves, and he'll drag that calf out one at a time. And when they drag that calf out, there's four or five of us in a group waiting on that calf. And as soon as that calf comes out, uh, I'm the one in the, the blue plaid shirt standing there looking down. As soon as that calf comes out, we'll drop down on that calf, and we'll start giving vaccinations and doing all the stuff. And then we'll make sure that calf's got the right ear tag for the right ranch and let them go. Now, on the left side, you see a cowgirl. She's from a neighboring ranch. On the right side of the picture, you see a cowboy. And in the 580 calves that we dealt with, nobody had any difficulty telling which was a male calf and which was a female calf. It was really super easy. We didn't have to have theology. The laws of nature tell us that there are two genders. Now, the laws of nature's God also tell us there are two genders, and that's why in the Scriptures four times God says, and he made them male and female. But I didn't have to have the Scriptures to tell me that. I had the laws of nature to tell me that. So whether it be issues of a transgender, uh, the same thing if you go to property and nature, once something is born, it will stake out what it considers to be its property, and will defend that and live on that for the duration of its life, whatever that is. Uh, the same thing when you get into issues like accumulation, oops, issues like accumulation and profit. 
Nobody says, Mr. Squirrel, you've accumulated too much. You need to share it with all the other squirrels. Nobody says that to the pack rats. Nobody says that to the beavers. Nobody says that to the cougars. However much you can accumulate and hold, that's, that's yours. There, there's no limit on, on that in the laws of nature. Uh, you also have things like association. I can hang out with whoever I want to. If, if I'm a black Angus cow and want to hang out with, with the, the red brain, if I want to hang out with the white Charlotte cows or if I want to hang out with the black and white Holstein cows, I can hang out with whoever I want to. That's the right of association. We have that in the Constitution. But now I'm told, no, you're a photographer. You have to hang out with these guys and photograph their wedding. And, and, and you're, a, you're a cake maker and you can't associate with who you want to. You got, no, no, no. I have a law of association that allows me to hang out with who I want to in, in nature. And so that's why you find that, that deer will jump fence because they'll go they want to go. Fences are not natural. That's not part of the laws of nature. That's something we've done. So we have all these laws to get us there, but we also have the scriptures to tell us. So the laws of nature's God, we have both of these. And between the laws of nature and the laws of nature's God, we understand what's right and wrong. Now, interesting, the laws of nature and nature's God are part of the seventh amendment of the constitution, what we call the common law. So this is where we get the definition of marriage. This is where we get so much else in the constitution is from the laws of nature and nature's God. There's, there's two genders and that's it. And they male and female, and they unite. So that's, that's what we understood about the laws of nature and nature's God. And this is where we get our moral rights and wrongs, and from this is where we get truth. So that's what the Declaration starts with, a very familiar phrase to people in those days that we don't understand now. The second thing I would point to is when they said all men are endowed by their creator. Now, what does this do? This tells us that there is a creator. So government is not inherently secular. We Note in our declaration that we're not secular. We believe there is a creator. We're not atheists. We're not secularists. And in believing there is a creator is significant because this was the unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America. In other words, the 13 nations at that time. They had not become one nation yet. 13 nations all said, hey, everybody listen up. We all unanimously agree that there's a creator. Now, I've been involved in 13 cases of the U.S. Supreme Court. I'm involved in a case this year at the Supreme Court. And it's interesting. So many of those cases deal with religious values, religious expressions. And the court says, well, you know, yeah, the nation believes in God. But we've got atheists in the nation don't believe in God. And so publicly, you can't, can't take a position. You can't take it. So the Supreme Court, we're, we're going to be neutral. And if the Ten Commandments offend you because you're an atheist, we'll make them come down. Because otherwise, it'd be the religious people ruling over the non No, no, no. We had atheists in America back then when we wrote this document. Having atheists in America, we didn't tell atheists that you're in a, part, you're in a nation that believes in God. Now, you're welcome to be here. We're not going to force you to believe in God. But this nation believes in God, and that has direct consequences on our policy. If you believe that there is a God, and this is what we announce to the whole world, we're starting this new country, and we all unanimously tell you there's a God. Even though there's atheists living among us, there is a God. Now, why is that important? And by the way, just to show you that it is important, let me... Let me point out that this is the first step in having a limited government. The Constitution only allows the federal government to do 17 things. That's it. Everything else belongs to the state and local. So the enumerated powers of the Constitution, 17. But since we don't even know how many branches of government there are, we have no clue what the government's supposed to be doing because we don't even know there's 17 powers. Nonetheless, they wrote it down very clearly for us. So as you look at this concept, they said this is how you limit government because they said, what happens with government is this is any government that doesn't God will always become supreme authority in that state. So they said by acknowledging there's a God, we'll always have government smaller than, than what other nations have. Second, like France and like Italy has become, like Spain and Morocco, they've got massive governments. They tell you what you can and can't do with your faith. You can't homeschool in, in Germany. You can't express your faith in France. That's proselytization. You go to jail for that. See, Anytime you have government being God, they will tell you what all the rights and wrongs are. We said, hey, government is not God. We believe that there is a God. Therefore, he establishes the rights and wrongs. We'll operate under enumerated powers. George Washington, on the day that we finished the Bill of Rights, he actually issued the first federal Thanksgiving proclamation on that day. And he said, we need to stop and thank God for what we've just done in securing inalienable rights. And he tells us why right here. I love his inscriptions. He said, it is the duty of nation. And by the way, notice the word duty. In their dictionary, duty was defined as a legally binding contractual obligation. This is big stuff. We have a legally binding duty. And who has the duty? He said, nations. It's not individuals. It's not that we as individuals have a, a duty to acknowledge God. He said, 
nations. Political entities have a legally binding contractual obligation to do four things. Notice what Washington said nations have a duty to do. He said, number one, to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God. Number two, to obey his will. Number three, to be grateful for his benefits. And number four, humbly to implore his protection and favor. That is the duty of nations. So we founded this country not to be secular. Secular folks are welcome here. But we're telling you that we're not going to become God in this nation. God's going to be God. We'll be below that. And that's why you have freedom is because we're not going to regulate all your freedoms. God does that. So that's the second point that they made. It's not only are there moral rights and wrongs, we, we believe that there's a creator. And then that leads to the third point, which says they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Now, this concept that there are certain rights that come from God and not from government, because secular people believe that everything comes from government. Religious people say, no, there's a God, and he gives certain things, and they come from him. If you believe that there are certain rights that come from God, this is actually the second step in limiting government. And let me see if I can explain this. On my ranch... In Texas, I have a red pickup. I like red pickups. I've had red pickups for several generations of red pickups. I've gone through several of them. And my son, whom I love dearly, doesn't quite agree with that. He has a black pickup. And he has the audacity to drive that black pickup onto the ranch. So last time he did that, I promptly spray-painted his truck red because everybody needs a red truck. Actually, I didn't do that. Why did I not spray paint his truck red? Because it's not my property. You see, I have the authority to spray paint red anything that belongs. I can spray paint my pastures red. I can spray paint my house red. I can spray paint my roads red. But if it doesn't belong to me, I can't spray paint it red. And that's what the founder said is, hey, government, there's a bunch of rights here that you can't spray paint red belong to you. You can't touch them. You can't regulate them. You can't do anything with them. These are rights that come from God. They're not your property. You, you can't touch these things. And see, this is why in other nations like Germany, kids don't belong to parents. Kids belong to the state. And we don't want you homeschooling our kids. See, this is the problem. When you have an alienable right, you're saying this is the way we limit government. By recognizing there are certain rights that come from God, we're telling government that it has a certain jurisdiction it can't get into. There's, there's areas that government can get into, and this is not one of them. So this is why it's significant. So when you look at that, our problem today is we can't really define very well enable rights. That's not part of our normal conversation. Fortunately, as I point out, the founding fathers are prolific writers. And when you go back to them and look at them, you find, for example, that John Dickinson, who is a signer of the Constitution, as well as one of the guys who helped do the Declaration, he defined inalienable rights. He said an inalienable right is a right which God has given to you and which no inferior power has a right to take away. If it comes from God, nobody can tell you you can't do that. You have the same from Alexander Hamilton. Alexander Hamilton said, inalienable rights are not to be rummaged for among old parchments or musty records. He says, they're written as with a sunbeam in the whole volume of human nature by the hand of divinity itself and can never be erased or obscured by any mortal power. Again, these are God-given rights that nobody else can touch, regulate, or impede. Uh, you have the same thing from John Adams. John Adams says, inalienable rights are antecedent to all earthly governments. They're rights that, are, that cannot be repealed or restrained by human laws. They're rights derived from the great legislator of the universe. So the definition is really clear. An enable right is a right that God gave you, not the government gave you. And because God gave it to you, it cannot be regulated or interfered with by government. Now, so that's the definition, but what are enable rights? Well, Sam Adams, who's the father of the American Revolution, one of the chief guys in writing the Declaration, he said, well, he said enable rights. He said, we told you in the Declaration that among others, there were four. And these were the four they listed in the Declaration. First is a right to life. Secondly, to liberty. Thirdly, to property, together with the right to defend them. So life, liberty, property, self-defense. Those are four inalienable rights that government is not allowed to regulate in any way, shape, fashion, or form. But as the Declaration said, these are four among others. Once we won the war for independence, we came back with the Bill of Rights 11 years later and said, hey, remember, we told you in the Declaration there were four, and that was among others. Here's a bunch of the others. So they went through into the First Amendment. They get five more inalienable rights. The Second Amendment, two more inalienable rights. The Third Amendment, one inalienable right. Fourth, all the way through all the amendments. There's 16 to 17 inalienable rights listed in the, in the Bill of Rights, and then you add that to the four in the Declaration. So you're right around two dozen inalienable rights that the Founding Fathers said these are never to be regulated by any, any government, any entity. These come straight from God to the people. So when you look at that, that's the third point, or that's, that's the, the third major point is you have moral rights and wrongs, which establish truth. 
you have a creator. The creator gives a certain set of rights to men. And here's the fourth point they made. It says that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. To secure what rights? To secure inalienable rights is why we have government. Now, it's interesting. That's the purpose of government. Government exists to protect inalienable rights. The first government you ever find in the Bible is in Genesis 9. Genesis 9, we had no government before that. You had Cain murder Abel, and it got so bad, God said, okay, let's just wipe everybody out and start again. And when Noah got off the ark, God delivered what are called the Noahide laws in Genesis 9, seven different laws. Here's what you do with murder. Here's what you do with theft. Let's, have, let's protect inalienable right. Because the right to life is an inalienable right, anybody that takes that right to life, here's what you do to them. Because the right to property is an inalienable right, anybody who takes that property, here's what you do to them. So all the laws that were given and the Noahide laws were intended to secure inalienable rights. That's why government exists. That's why the American government realized that it exists as a secure inalienable rights. So it's interesting. You go to James Wilson, who is one of only six guys who signed the Declaration and the Constitution. James Wilson was put on the original Supreme Court by George Washington as an original justice on the court. And while he's on the court, he started a law school. We have his law books from when he was sitting on the court in 1791, being a Supreme Court justice and teaching law school at the same time. And he told the students why we had the American War for Independence. This is what he wrote in his law lectures. He says, the principal object of government is to acquire a new security for the possession of those rights which we were previously entitled by the immediate gift of our all-wise, all-beneficent creator. In other words, when we were British citizens, we used to have inalienable rights. The king used to recognize inalienable rights. We had a Magna Carta. We had a Bill of Rights. But King George III came along and said, no, I'm in charge of your rights. And he started taking away our right to religious freedom. He started taking away our right to self-defense. And we're just not going to have a government that won't let inalienable rights be part of it. He said, that's why we had the American War for Independence, because we wanted to give a new security for the possession of those rights that we used to have. So that's why we did the American War for Independence. Sam Adams affirmed the same thing. Sam Adams said government was originally designed for the preservation of the inalienable rights. And that's Genesis 9. He pointed out again. He said, what were those rights? He said, first is right to life, second to liberty, thirdly to property. Now, I'll point out that phrase, right to life, that's always intriguing to us. And we're like, Man, it had been really cool if they had been talking about right to life the way we do, because then we could go to the court and argue this is original intent, and right now we've got a bunch of justices on the court who do care about original intent, so if we can show them the original but we know that's not what they were talking about. When they talked about a right to life, it wasn't dealing with abortion. Why do we say that? Actually, here's a book we own on abortion in America in 1808. They were dealing with abortion, but as I pointed out, it was chemical. We weren't using physical abortions then. Chemical was the way. That had been the way for hundreds of years. There are certain pills, certain medicines, certain things you can take and ingest that will cause the child to be aborted. So we dealt with abortion back then, and it's significant. We did not allow it in early America. Thomas Jefferson, when he wrote the Legal Code of Virginia in 1779, prohibited abortions as a violation of natural law and as a violation of inalienable rights. You go through the Founding Fathers' writings, they talked about it. Now, they often use the Latin term ventri and say, which was life in the womb, life inside. Anytime there's life inside, and this, this is what James Wilson wrote further about. Uh, James Wilson, in, in talking about this, this is what he has in his lecture. He says, students with consistency beautiful and undeviating from human life from its commencements to its close is protected by the common law, Seventh Amendment of the Constitution. And he continued. He said, in the contemplations of law, life begins when the infant is first able to stir in the womb, and by the law that life is protected. Now, here's the deal. Back in their day, how long did it take you to know for sure that there was life in the womb? Generally, the first trimester before you knew for sure. The point is, as soon as you know, that's when you protect it. Now, technology, given what it is today, how soon do we know? Well, they say about eight days from fertilization, we know now. Or some say heart, whatever. Whatever it is, as soon as you know there's life in the, in the womb, at that point, law kicks in to protect life because life is an inalienable right. The right to life literally is inalienable. And so this is where they talked about it and what they knew with the technology then, but the principle is still the same. As soon as you know there's life in the womb, at that point, it is protected. And it's significant that, that John Witherspoon, who's a signer of the Declaration, he's president of Princeton University, he actually gave a lecture to students at Princeton on why America was different from Europe and particularly France. He said in Europe and in France, they allow abortion 
abortions over there. They allow unborn children to be killed in, in France. He said, we don't allow that here. We don't allow parents the choice of whether they kill a child. He said, life comes from God. And this is what he pointed out to them in the lecture. He says, a perfect right and a state of natural liberty is the right to life. He said, here in America, we've denied the power of life and death to parents. We don't let parents kill their children. And they do that in, in Europe where they're secular. Right. Here in America, we understand that the right to life, literally the right to be born, is a natural right that comes from God. So they specifically talked about this. This was a part of their thinking. It was very important to them. And by the way, if I may point out, Sam Adams said first is a right to life. Please notice the word first. That word is really super important. If you will tell me, uh, I've been involved in politics a long time, helping run state parties and doing national races, still do races today, consulting on, on everything from president to dog catcher. If you'll tell me where any candidate is on the life issue, I, I don't know who's running for U.S. Senate in Wyoming. I don't even know if there's somebody running this year, but let's assume there's a U.S. Senate race in Wyoming right now. If you will tell me where the candidate is on the life issue with a 90% degree of certainty, I will tell you how he will vote on every other issue. If I know where he is on life, I'll tell you how he's going to vote on the U.N. Convention on Small Arms Treaty. You tell me where he is on life, I'll know where he is on climate change. You tell me where he is on life, I'll know where he is on, on uh, spending, taxing. You tell, me, you, you tell me, you pick any issue, if you tell me where he is on life with a 90% degree of certainty, I will tell you how he's going to vote on the other issues. You see, it goes to this. If you, if you take something as simple as the right to life... If you don't believe the right to life is an inalienable right, guess what? You're not going to be any good on protecting the inalienable right to acknowledge God according to the dictates of conscience. If you don't believe there's a right to life, you're going to be wrong in the First Amendment. Uh, no, 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 there's separation church and state. That kid can't say God in school. What's he thinking? If you're wrong on life, you'll be wrong on the rights, rights of conscience, religious expression. If you're wrong on life, you'll be wrong on the Second Amendment guarantee for the right of self-defense. Oh, no, we've got to regulate that. We've got to ban that. No, if you don't recognize inalienable rights, you won't recognize any inalienable rights. And the first inalienable right is the right to life. You'll be wrong on What's in the Fifth Amendment with private property? Well, you know, government really needs that. We need that to build something on. And so we're going to take your private property or we're going to have property taxes so that if you don't pay them, we'll take your property away from you and give it to somebody else. Same when you get to the Seventh Amendment. This is where marriage is protected, traditional marriage. If you don't believe with life, you're not going to believe that marriage is a lifelong institution between a man and a woman. And so you'll find that somebody who's wrong on life will be wrong on every other. It's like an interstate. Once you get off the interstate, you're off the interstate till you get back on the interstate. And that interstate is the life issue. If you get off boards on that, you're going to be off on everything else all the way through. So this is what we understood about life, and this is why it's an important issue to them. So we would say, well, yeah, but those are all social issues. It's, it's economic issues that really I care about. And there's a lot of people who say that. I don't, I don't want to get involved in that abortion stuff. I don't want to get involved. I just care about economic issues and government spending too much. And there's a lot of economic issues to talk about, the deficit and, and the debt and the spending and the taxing, all the stuff that goes with it. All right, let me hit that for just a moment. See, if you take national right to life, they keep a scorecard on everybody in Washington, D.C. that votes. So they have a scorecard for every member of the House of Representatives. And if you say, all right, who are the best people in the U.S. House today on protecting unborn life? Scorecard. And, and this is this year, and, and these are all 100 percenters, Lauren Bulbert from uh, from Colorado and Mo Brooks from Missouri and Michael Burgess from Texas. And I can go down the list. These are 100 percenters. Yeah, but I don't care about social issues. Okay, if you don't care about social issues, then you want to pay attention to groups like Americans for Prosperity. Because Americans for Prosperity, these guys do nothing but economic issues. They don't care what about life. They care about economic issues. And if you take their scorecard, you'll find that it's a one-to-one -one correlation. The 100 percenters on the economic issues are also the 100 percenters on the life issues. So what we argued when I was helping run the party in Texas was the Chamber of Commerce didn't care what about life, but they cared about economics. We said, well, guys, if you want guys who vote right on your economic issues, you want pro-life people because here's the one-to-one -one correlation. So we actually got the non-life people to support life simply because they got the economic results they wanted. But this is the correlation. If I take it the other direction, say, okay, so with right to life, who are the worst in the nation at supporting life? There's your zero percenters. They don't vote right on protecting unborn life anyway. All right. If I compare them to where we are with things like national, oops, back up, national right to life, I mean, Americans for Prosperity, you see the same correlation. The worst economic voters 
are the worst life voters or vice versa. The two go together. And it makes perfect sense because if they won't protect your life, why would they protect your money? Your life is a whole lot more important than your money is. And if they don't get that right, they won't get anything else right. So that's the fourth thing that I would point to is the right to life. And that's social issues, economic issues. It's all there. That's the fourth thing. The fifth thing in the declaration, our guiding principle of government, it's real simple. That fifth thing says that the consent of the governed. Governments are among men deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. The way that George Washington explained this, George Washington said it very simply. He said the fundamental power, the principle of our Constitution requires that the will of the majority shall prevail. Thomas Jefferson, who started the other political party, the Anti-Federalist Party, said exactly the same thing. He said the will of the majority, the natural law of every society is the only true guardian of the rights of man. So everybody agreed that the will of the majority prevails. Now, if I can go through these five principles real quick, just let me remind you from the first, fixed moral law that establishes absolute truth. The second is there's a divine creator. The third is the divine creator gives inalienable rights. The fourth is that government exists to protect those rights. And the fifth is the will of the majority. Now, please notice that the will of the majority is the fifth of those rights. What's that mean? means you can vote on things that don't appear in the top four. You can't vote on moral rights and wrongs. Let, let's have a referendum on whether rape should be a crime. It's, it's part of the laws of nature. Nature's God. We don't have a vote on that. But we voted 82 to 18. Rape is a crime. doesn't matter what you voted. It violates the laws of nature. Nature's God. Well, let's vote on whether we should have a life. Let's vote on whether life should be constitutionally protected. No, that's an inalienable right. Everybody's got the right to life. It's like saying, let's vote on whether we should defend ourselves. We don't do that because that's an Well, then what do you vote on? What you vote on is whether the sidewalk should be five feet wide, six feet wide, or seven feet wide. You vote on whether the speed limit should be 55, 65, or if you're in Texas, 85. You can vote on things like that, but you don't vote on moral issues and you don't vote on inalienable rights. And that's the order they put it in. That's why that was number five in the list. See, we're having debates today over things we should not even be debating over because they're inalienable rights and they're, they're moral rights and wrongs. And that's part of we've just lost the foundational understanding of what made America a unique nation. So notice, too, that a secular government will never be a limited government. Of those five issues I gave you, four were God-centered, and they were the top four. The fifth was the will of the majority. If you ever have a secular government, you'll lose all of that, and everything goes by majority vote. And that's what they're trying to do in the House right now. They want to vote on everything. They want to vote on making abortion 100% of the time available. If states have trigger laws, they go away because we've got a federal law. See, they're voting on stuff that never happens unless you're secular-minded. And so getting people in office that are God-centered and understand enable rights, that's really important because then you'll get your economic protections, you'll get your regulatory protections, everything else flows from that. So closing out, last few minutes I've got, why did God create man? Well, shorter catechism for the last several hundred years has told us that man was created to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And that's a good answer. But I'm going to suggest that's not the only answer. Now, why would I suggest that? Because I go back to three Bible verses, one of which is part of the emphasis of the conference. If I go back to why man was created, it's not solely to glorify God and enjoy him forever. If you go to the creation of, of man, you'll find Genesis 1 is there and Genesis 2 it's repeated. Genesis 2, you get more detail tell than you get in Genesis 1. Genesis 1 is like a 30,000-foot view. In Genesis 2, when you get the creation of man, it's like down at a 10,000-foot view. You get more details. It's interesting that man was the last thing God created. He created the, the planet and the environment and the heavens from the earth and the light from the darkness, and he created the, the sea and the fish and the plants and the, the animals. Went right on through. And the last thing he created was man. Why did he create man? Genesis 2 tells us, it's in verse 5 and verse 15, it's also in Genesis one twenty six. It said, God looked at his creation and saw that his creation was good, but he saw that he had no one to tend the garden. So he created man. Man was created to take care of God's stuff. God created it all. We're the last thing created because he wanted someone to take care of all the stuff he had there. So taking care of his stuff or tending the garden is part of what he put us here to do. 
not just enjoy him and praise him, which is necessary for every believer, but he put us here to take care of the stuff. And the stuff is everything he's given us. It's life. It's all the other things that, again, we saw in our founding documents. These were things we protected and understood that we had to be involved in their protection. Another way of saying it is Luke nineteen thirteen, where Jesus says, occupy or do business till I return. Till he gets back, we're supposed to be busy doing his work. And part of that work is remembering that with all the stuff that's out there, and, and by the way, You've seen that the emphasis on the conference has been Genesis 127. Genesis 127, God created mankind in his own image, and the image of God created he them, male and female created him. So that's the verse. The verse before that is one of those verses where it says that God created man, let us make mankind our image, that they may rule over the fish in the seas and the birds in the air, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Let's make man so that he has authority and dominion over everything we've made. So that's the concept of tending the garden. So the challenge I would give you, you're here involved actively because you're activists. Everybody in America that is of Christian faith should have been in here in this room. They should all be activists. We have a lot of people that are not activists. They're not tending the garden. You guys have decided to tend the garden. That's why you're here, because you're an activist. We need a whole lot more people tending the garden. If we had that, we wouldn't be having the debate we're having today. This would not be a political issue. This would have been solved long ago because of the philosophy of life that we teach in church, the philosophy of tending the garden that we teach in schools. You're supposed to be a good steward of all this stuff. So going back, just summarizing real quickly, Genesis 127, it's the emphasis of the conference, which is perfect. Genesis 126 tells us about that, and it's tending the garden. But the first thing is, and the founding fathers pointed out, it was life first. And, and that's, that's why what we do here is significant. If we are wrong on the life issue, we have no hope of having a constitutional government in the future. The people who are anti-life are also anti our constitution. They're anti our form of government. They're anti our, our, our rights in every other area. This is a whole lot more than what we often think about as activists. And I'm I hope I'm chief among the activists in in defending life. I hope that's one of the things I go down known for. But I also understand that if I don't get that right, nothing else is going to be right in the whole nation as well. So it's life first, and that's the key issue. God bless you guys. Thanks for letting me share. Bob. Don't go anywhere. Don't go anywhere, David Barton. We've got questions for you. And it looks like we've got about seven minutes, Matt. Thank you. Looks like we've got about seven minutes of questions and answers, some terrific ones submitted by our attendees. Thank you for that wonderful presentation. This one is uh, just a binary choice here. Which should America prefer, liberty or equality? Um, liberty is non-subjective. Equality is subjective. So I always go with the, the inalienable rights. Liberty is an inalienable right. Equality is not an inalienable right. Equality is a fruit of liberty. If you understand liberty, that God made all men to be free, and if you look in, in uh, Acts seventeen twenty six, of one man he made all generations of man. I've recently spoken in a black church, about 6,000 people in Detroit, and I'm the only white guy in church. And I read Genesis 26 and said, by the way, you do know I'm your cousin, right? We're all, we're all cousins here. We all came from one. Equality, we have it in Ecclesians. We have it in Colossians. We have it in Galatians that there's neither slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, male nor female. The equality comes because of the recognition of who God is and what he's done for all of us. Liberty is one of those fruits that God gives to us. Equality is the, is the outworking of that fruit. So for me, liberty is the biggest thing. Once you get God's view of liberty, equality makes perfect sense. And that's why you'll find out that most of the ministers in the um, Civil War were on the abolition side. A few in the South were not, and they were proven wrong to be later. But the more biblical your view is of God, the more likely you're to work for equality because you understand what liberty is. Ladies and gentlemen, once again, David Barton. Thank you so very much. You've been listening to David Barton, the founder and president of Wall Builders, a national pro-family organization that focuses on America's forgotten history and presenter at the 2022 Bringing America Back to Life Convention. 
From the Median is listener supported. Visit our website, fromthemedian.org, for further information or to make a donation to continue to make this radio program possible. Email us, radionews at fromthemedian.org or call 440-668-4049. Through our fromthemedian.org website, you can download this or previous programs for your listening pleasure or sign up to receive our weekly preview of upcoming guest interviews. Tune in every weeknight at the same time to listen to another great interview on From the Median as we plan the route that takes us back to the culture of life. This program has been sponsored by Cleveland Right to Life and is responsible for its content.